Today's episode features Judy Esber from Hear Me Finance. Judy's been featured in Business Insider on her perspectives on ethical investing, not to mention the New York Times for her own money story. In this episode, we discuss her beginnings as a union organizer and how that led her to becoming a money coach. We also discuss some of the ethical implications of real estate investing, how to get started ethically investing in the stock market with ESGs, environmental, social, and governance funds, the big student loan cancellation debate, as well as overcoming debt. So many gems here. Judy is a wealth of knowledge, pun intended, and her willingness to untangle some of these complicated concepts make for an insightful episode, to say the least. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. Every person I've ever met cares deeply about something, whether it be women's rights, financial independence, the freedom to believe in a god or the universe, even their child's education. And oftentimes when advocating for these causes, people find themselves depleted. Full stop. Is it possible for us to create the world of our ideals from a place of lack? Well, what if we flip the script? What if we can shift our focus from what we don't want to what we do want? What if we can create the world we want from a place of joy, love, and abundance instead? Finding the nuance in this shift is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to discuss and investigate. My name is Lola Sofia Bovell, and I am the host of the Latina Advocate Podcast. If you love our content on everything from advocacy to building generational wealth, make sure to not only subscribe to our podcast, but rate and review it as well. You can do this anywhere you get your podcasts, but especially on Apple and Spotify. Also, make sure you're following us on Instagram and TikTok. Our handle is at the Latina Advocate Podcast, just as it's spelled. Thanks for your support. All right. So a lot of you know I'm passionate about women and mamas knowing their rights, especially at work. We envelop so much of our identities in our career, and unfortunately, the sentiment isn't always reciprocated by our employers. That's why I'm so excited to announce that I'm partnering with Daphne Delbo, also known as the Mom Attorney, so that you can become your own lawyer and confidently advocate for your rights at work. Right now, Latina Advocate podcast listeners exclusively get 10% off when joining the Mom Attorney Academy. All you have to do is go to the link in this episode's show notes and upon checkout, put in coupon code LATINAPOD10. That's L-A-T-I-N-A-P-O-D-1-0. Learn to advocate for yourself in a way that is well-received and protected. Address concerns without fear of losing your job. Heal your body, take care of your mental health, and get paid your worth. Join the Mama Attorney Academy today so that you can strategically advocate for yourself. Just click the link in our show notes or in our Instagram bio and upon checkout, put in coupon code LATINAPOD10. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Latina Advocate Podcast. This is your host, Lola Sofia Bovell, and I am here with the incredible Judy Esber, who is 
the ultimate money coach. And one of the things that I really love about her work, I've been following her for some time now, is she's really tethering this tension that I've been feeling coming up within myself, being someone that really cares about building generational wealth and talking about abundance, right? But then also just acknowledging your social justice roots and the progressive roots. And sometimes those worlds don't really combine easily. They feel very mutually exclusive, but they don't have to be. So excited to just dive in with Judy. It's going to be so exciting. such a juicy conversation. I can feel it already. But without further ado, Judy, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's seriously an honor and I love talking about these topics. So I'm excited to dive in. So Judy, having read your bio, I'm thinking, so you were a union organizer, right? Okay. And then now you've dove into being this finance money coach. So tell us a little bit about just your background as a whole, how you went from being a union organizer over to now really talking about finances. I'm just like fascinated to know. Yeah, most people would think, okay, those two worlds are not connected, being a union organizer and being a personal finance coach. But I do think that they're truly connected because I was working with mostly low income, mostly women of color in the Mm. service industry, mostly food service, fight for better wages, better working conditions, benefits, respect on the job. But we could fight for those things all we want. But if we the workers then have higher wages, but then they don't know how to manage that money in a way or have the tools to use that money in a way to build security, then then there's no point because they're still going to live in poverty because they don't know how to purchase property or they don't know how to manage in a way that they can invest for retirement or just manage in a way so they're not living paycheck to paycheck. And I see those worlds as being connected. And honestly, I thought I was going to be a union organizer for the rest of my life. Wow. But I started having health issues because it is a very stressful job. And I'm really, I have so much respect for those who do that work. Having been in that field, I have friends who are still in it. And I'm like, you work so hard. You're doing the Lord's work. But I started having health issues. And for me, I just could not keep up with the hours and the stress. And so I was like, what else would I do? And I had to figure out all the money world (laughs) on my own. So my mom is an immigrant from Honduras. My dad was not good at managing money. My partner's Honduran. So my my daughters are both half Honduran. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't know anything about managing money. Her mom actually, I think was, she was someone who would hoard money under the mattress type of person was decent with money, Mm -hmm. not was not a good at talking to my mom about here's how you manage your money. Mm -hmm. And then my dad, he was very bad with money, would make it, blow it, make it, blow it. He was just all over the place. He he had mental health problems and would, that was like, would affect the finances. And so I just had no idea. So when I started making decent money as a union organizer enough, that was like more than what my parents had ever had. I just got into debt because I was doing a lot of emotional spending and just didn't know about the right accounts to have or how to create a budget and how to save, how to pay off debt. So I figured it out over my own and it would pull tips here and there. And I was like, you know what? Like that took forever for me to figure out. Like I learned little by little. Yeah. And if I had the tools like all at my fingertips, it would have been such a faster journey and I would be way further ahead than I am now. Not that I'm in a great place now, but it would have been like, I'm like, man, if I could have all this in like a short period of time. So I was like, okay, maybe I can teach other women. 
and give them the tools that I w- that I learned over the course of 10 years in three, four months. <laughs> and that's what sure. I do with my coaching program. Well, that's awesome. So one of the things that I think touches on what you've been talking about is the reality is a lot of people that are low income, maybe they have kids, who knows, whatever, but they're really busy, right? They don't have extra time to be then reading all these books and then analyzing. And also it can be really intimidating too. So I think to have someone that's like, from that general genre of work, if you will, is really helpful too. So that's really great. So you went from the organizing path, you were really passionate about it, but you felt your health kind of declining. I was there too. So I'm actually an immigration attorney by trade and I found myself working 80 hours a week sometimes. And yeah, my health started to decline. I've gone in a different trajectory as well. And one of the things that I've been really talking about a lot on this podcast and I'm really passionate about is building generational wealth because particularly we talk about Latina women, they make 52 cents to the white man's dollar, right? At this point. And it's extremely problematic. And I've been talking about a lot, like one of the things that I've been dabbling in and just to jump into that is the real estate investing space. And that is a little complicated too, because having been in these progressive spaces and working on issues like gentrification, right? And the housing crisis, and here I am now coming in as an investor, but the reality is if I hadn't gone this investing route, I might've been in a really difficult situation when I decided to no longer be in some of these high earning W2 positions, right? And because I've had, I had this property here that I have right now, it gave me that flexibility. So I feel like there has to be a middle ground somewhere. I know you do, from my understanding, you do the ethical investing and I've heard you use the term ESG. We can talk about real estate investing now, we can talk about it later, but I'd also really love to hear really what your thought process is in terms of ethical investing and what is ESG and all of those things. So those of us that are looking to build our wealth can feel good and strong about it. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I have so many thoughts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that term wealth has so much like weight to it because mm-hmm. so many people, when you think of wealth, you think of, okay, the rich and it, cause, and it puts so much of the focus on the money as a solution. And that's the thing too, when we were in union organizing, yes, we're always fighting for better wages for our workers, but it was never really just about the money. It was like when we had respect from our bosses, the money came. But if you have the money, but no respect, it doesn't mean a thing, right? So I think what we're seeking is not like the wealth. We're seeking is opportunities and freedom, right? Often we pair money with opportunities and freedom, right? And the real studies show that you don't actually need a ton of money to be happy, right? You need some. Yeah. Right, but not a ton. So it's like the studies show, I think it's up to it probably up now, maybe it was like, I think 80,000, depending on your, where you're living and a certain amount of money would increase your level of happiness. But then once you got beyond that, it did Didn't not matter happiness at all. Yeah. So, cause I think what we really want for our kids and want for ourselves is that freedom to be able to do what we want and not to be overworked, not to be stressed not to be unhealthy because we don't have the time to take care of ourselves or this, we're just living off the stress hormones, doing too much. And any on the freedom to do what we love and get paid for it. Right. And so it's like, our goal is not to just give our kids money and then they're just still unhappy. Right. So it's like, how do we give our kids an abundance mindset? So they believe in themselves and opportunities so they can go for what they want and have security, right? And live that life of joy and happiness. And so maybe part of that is passing down some property, 
right? Maybe part of that is having some money so they can go to college without worrying about it. Part of that is making enough money so we don't have to work ourselves to death so we can be present for our children and, and be able to love on them and be there for them. And so it's, I think it's just, we're not always talking about all these complexities. And so we tie money to all those things, to freedom, to time. And there is a correlation, but sometimes I think it helps to separate it a little bit and really dig to the root of what it is we actually want and not make it about money and then focus on those things. Oh, that's so good. Because this is something that I've been working on lately too, in terms of the abundance mindset. But Literally, when let's just say we think about, like, I want to go on this really expensive vacation in Hawaii. And like, and so it's, but why do you really want to go? Let's talk about that. And then really the reality is the reason why you want to go on this vacation to Hawaii is you want the feeling that you think that vacation is going to give you, right? And yep. so it's just so interesting. However, so that is true. Like the reality, and I guess I could just meditate and do a visualization and think about myself in Hawaii and that could potentially have the same effects as going, but there is something nice about knowing that I could just up and take my little flight, just purchase my first class ticket and get over there and not have to worry about the money. Like you said, they are correlated, but I think it's interesting that you're kind of untangling it a little bit because it's so important to really realize what is it that we're really seeking. It's not the money is just a tool. It's really, it's what's behind the money and what we think the money is going to give us. So I love that you broke that down that way. Yeah. And because wanting to go to Hawaii, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing, right? To be able to have the money to go to Hawaii and have vacation. But then if we're still working ourselves to death and going to Hawaii is our only solution for our stress and really maybe the tools we need to figure out not being in the career path that we're in, because that's tearing us down. Sometimes we do all these things to cover up the trauma that's underneath. Mm. I want to give my kids money, but part of it is your kids really just need therapy because we all need therapy. And maybe we want all this money and maybe part of what we need is therapy. We'll still want money, nothing wrong with that, but the money won't solve, won't release all the trauma that we have that we need to process. They got passed down from generation to generation. And there's some communities like communities of color that may have more trauma. And that's why we we need money to get therapy. it's entangled and it's complicated. Yeah. But in terms, I really want to bring it back to real estate investment because I think it's a great question because mm, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this recently because I actually made a TikTok about this because I had the question come up from people is like, okay, should you even own your own home if you're an anti-capitalist, for example? And so the reality is if we're not buying properties, who is buying property? That's it though. That's it. That's <laughs> it, Judy. That's it though. It's like, you're not playing the game. You're getting yeah. played. I've always felt that way. Yeah. yeah. And it's not even just individuals, corporations buying up properties right and left. They're big, these private equity firms, Blackstone is one of the largest private equity firms. And so for those who don't know what private equity firm, the way that it makes sense in my mind to describe it is like, a big bucket of money from rich people that they invest, whether in businesses, the stock market or different things. And they've maybe flipped the businesses or cut down the cost of the business to make a profit and they give those profits to their investors. And so Blackstone has been heavily giving into rental property investing. And so these are the people that are buying properties and they have literally been quoted in the New York Times as saying, this is how we're dealing with inflation. Yes, inflation is going up, but we're going to be okay because if we get into real estate investing, real estate rents are going up two, three times what they have been. So we'll still make a huge profit because we'll make two to three times what we're investing in it. (laughs) 
they're just like, they're not hiding. They're buying these properties and doubling, tripling the rent. Yeah. And one thing that I heard actually recently on a podcast, I forgot what podcast it is, but there's been a discussion about they want to make renting the new American dream. So to even take away the idea of owning your own property as something that you want to covet. And that's really, that's scary. So it leads to your point though. Let's take up like the entire landscape and just really emphasize renting. And then people can barely afford their rents and then you're always in that rat race. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather have progressive people buying properties and being landlords who are going to have compassion over their tenants. Because the thing is, I see people all the time. If you can't afford to buy that property and keep the rents not crazy, then maybe you can't afford to buy that property. I have such mixed feelings about this, <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. I guess it really comes down to what is it that you feel is like your ethical threshold? And I think it just has to be a personal question, right? Why should XYZ person charge less than like the market rate, whatever the market rate is. But then again, like, why is the market rate? That's the question. Yeah, that's true too. So Anyways, I was just curious what your thoughts are, but I think you bring up such valid points and yes, organizing, right? And if more of us communicate and talk to each other about what is it, what community do we want to create for ourselves? Yeah. And then we can say, this is more or less what we want the market rate to be for rent. And this is the cap number of short-term rentals we want in this area or whatever it is. And those conversations can happen. So let's dive in a little bit in terms of, because I really want to learn about ESG. And I like literally, I'd never heard of this acronym until I saw your post. And then I looked it up, but this actually came up now that I'm thinking about it. One of the organizations that I worked for, very progressive, very social justice minded group of people. And a lot of us were like, we don't really feel comfortable investing in this 401k because we don't know where our money is going. And in fact, it looks like when we dive into this further, we're actually investing in companies that we hate (laughs) because they're actually these private prison companies that are detaining people that we're advocating for. So would love to just hear more about this model and how we can feel empowered to invest in these various different organizations, et cetera. Yes. So ESG stands for environmental social governance investing, but it wasn't like very popular. At some point, there are people who started asking these questions. Okay, I would like to invest and not have my money go to all these things that I don't like. And so it started becoming a thing where different firms that manage investments started creating these funds that would either exclude certain things or only include certain things based on someone's values, right? And everyone's like, I think you mentioned earlier, like it's all, everyone's values can be different, right? Mm -hmm. Your values can be different than mine, could be different than my neighbors, different than my mother's, right? They could all be different. And yeah, depending on that person or, or that fund, the people managing that fund. And now more and more women, particularly the studies have shown more and more women are wanting to invest ethically or based on their values. And so these funds have been growing and there's better options. And I do believe it's more very important that we get these words out about these funds and we start talking about them because the more we start talking, the better, because right now the options are way better than they were 10 years ago (laughs) for these funds, but they're still like have a long way to go where I, I would love to see them be at. And so the more we start doing this, the more they're going to provide better options. Like, for example, before, if you want to invest based off your values, there were like very high fee funds, right? It was like, yes, you can do this, but we're going to charge you a shit ton of money, excuse my French, right, to do this. And it wasn't even that much better based on our values. Now, Vanguard is one of the investing firms that has been known for having 
low cost index funds. And for those who don't know what an index fund is, like a basket of stocks, basically, instead of saying, I'm investing in Apple, Google, Coca-Cola, they'll be like, here's a basket and it's got those three plus a hundred other stocks or 300 other stocks in it. It's a much more secure way to invest because it's very a diverse yeah. um, group of stocks. And basically there are some index ESG funds or like index funds of stocks. And they have now some that have very low fees. And even recently I was looking at the fund. I was like, oh, looks like they made an update to how they're managing the fund. So they're constantly changing, right? And so they now have some very low fee, good ethical investing funds. And because of that, now other companies are starting to do like Fidelity, another investing firm, Charles Schwab are starting to come up with their own options. So it's really good. There's starting to be more options. And I believe there's going to be even more options in the future. And so what a lot of them have started to do, one of the first things was a lot of them start by excluding very particular things. So what I've seen that's most popular is they'll exclude big oil, they'll exclude weapons companies that make guns, that provide nuclear weapons mm -hmm. for like war and stuff that I don't have as much passion about. Those two are something that I'm passionate about not investing in. Yeah. And then other stuff like alcohol, porn, stuff like that, cigarettes, I think, which I'm like, sure, maybe it's good not to invest in. I don't really care about that. I really care about big oil and weapons or mm -hmm. things that I'm very passionate about. I would rather, instead of some of those other ones, like alcohol, I don't care. I drink sometimes. I'm not a big drinker, but I'll have a beer sometimes. But I would prefer to exclude other companies that like, I don't know, treat their workers really badly. Yeah. There aren't that many options right now. We'll be right back after this brief message. Do you have a big presentation coming up? Want to reach your audience in a deeper way to create massive change? Well, you're in luck. Many of you know I'm a huge performing arts nerd that also happens to be an attorney. And yes, I love public speaking, but I also love supporting people transform the effectiveness of their messages. I believe language and the thoughtful use of our voices can change lives. So I'm excited to announce that I've opened up one-on-one -on -one coaching spots. For a few individuals that are ready to transform their speaking from good to exceptional. For more information, be sure to check out this episode's show notes or the link in our Instagram bio. Let's get your voice out there. Have companies that do treat their workers really well. There's some, mm -hmm. but not that many. So that's what a lot of those funds are. So just to take a step back for our listeners, because I think we have a wide variety of people listening to the podcast. And so let's just back it up. You're talking about Vanguard. This is literally an organization, an entity where you can invest through like Fidelity, et cetera. How would you name that? Yeah. Category. <laughs> so when you, they're called brokerage firms. Okay. So when you want to invest money in the stock market, you can't just be like, oh, we'll go up to Wall Street and be like, here's $100. Give me a stock. You have to go through these firms that manage investments. And so there's a ton of them. And I think some people, it's easy to stress about, oh, which one do I choose? Because it was like Vanguard. E-Trade, Fidelity, Charles Schwab. There's there's way more than that. The Those are some of the main ones that like a lot of the clients I work with use. And those are all fine options, right? And so it's easy to get stuck in the mud of like, which one do I choose? It's just look at the website of a couple of those, which website looks best, looks easy enough for you to use and pick one and go. And you could always like open up, if you like really hate that company, you can always open it up 
and roll over your investments to another firm if you end up hating. But I wouldn't like sit and like stress too much about which one to start with. It's better just to pick one and start. Um, so like I started with Vanguard and now I started putting more of my money in Fidelity because I like Fidelity better now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, and that's totally fine. I still, I haven't even rolled over the money because I'm fine with that money sitting in Vanguard. You can have investments in multiple firms. And so then, but once you give them your money and say, I want to put this money, whether the, like a brokerage account is just a general investing fund. So you could be like, Hey, Vanguard, I want a brokerage account with you. Or you could be like a retirement investing account. Like I want a Roth IRA with you, which I have both of those. Right. And, and so you tell Vanguard, Hey, I want a Roth IRA investment account with you. You give them a thousand dollars, but you still have to pick what that money is invested in. And so you have to tell them, Hey, I would like it invested in, you could say all one stock, but that's not necessarily the best bet because if you put all your money in one company, you're, if they could do great, but they could also tank, right? So an index fund can be a great option if you're, you just want to be safer. And so you could do a regular index fund that just has every, there's one called the total stock market. And that literally has every company in the stock market. It's like for over 4,000 companies, right? But then you're including companies like big oil, which for me, I'm really passionate about renewable energy, weapons companies, stuff like that. Or you can pick an ESG fund. So there's one called ESGV, the ESG US Stock ETF. And that's one that has, that excludes some of those stuff. So really, and when we're talking about ESGs, that is a fund that has, in theory, and I was looking at the acronym, but it's basically companies and organizations that are more socially conscious. The reality is, though, still that if you want to be super picky and you want to actually know where exactly is my money going? You would still need to probably like just individually put money into each of those specific stocks, right? Yes. And so part of it depends where you are in your investing journey, how confident you are in picking and choosing stocks. And so it's different for everyone. Like I started with just putting money into regular index fund. Then I transitioned to ethical investing index fund and only doing that. And then I personally feel very confident as an investor now because I, I teach it. I've done it for years now. So I felt confident enough to start to pick and choose my own stocks because I didn't feel like the ESG index funds were good enough for me. And so I started doing a lot of research. So I actually have a course where I teach like everything that I've learned along my journey, whether you want to just do the ESG index funds or whether you want to buy individual stock. And I share some of the tools that I use to figure out what companies align with my values. But part of that is you don't want to just then pick two companies and that's it. You want to be able to, they call it diversify, right? One company is doing bad. That's okay because another company is doing good. So you want to, I would say if you're diversifying minimum 30 companies, but really you want to like eventually get like a hundred companies, 300 companies that you're investing in. And so I've started now, all my future money that I'm investing in has been put into individual stocks. And so I've been like slowly making a list and then buying more and more stocks of different companies that align with my values, whether it's like, well, I would say the first one that I started with Costco. I love Costco Costco too. I love their socks. I know that's silly, but the socks are so, that's Puma socks. Yeah. The socks my husband wears is when I wear like workout socks, I use their socks and they treat their workers very well. They have very high wages, very good benefits. Yeah. Like I, I even have a friend from high school, sister works there and she's younger and she's like, I love it. People who are older, people who are younger, it's they say like, you got to go to college to get a good job that pays well. That's not true. If you have companies doing the right thing, like 
she went to college and still wants to work at Costco because they treat her so well. <laughs> tell too, because yeah. you see so many other employees, they stay. And that's really a huge teller. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the company I was like, you know, I like, and they're also provide great prices. It's just the, the whole model I love. And so I started by buying some Costco stock. And then I like started researching about, oh, here's another company. Here's another. But what helped me start with that was I felt secure because I still had some of the index funds. So I was like, okay, it's not all in Costco. <laughs> I have my index funds. And then I'm starting with Costco and now all future money, I've been stocks in all these different companies. So I'd be like, oh, I like the model of this company. Oh, this is like a really women empowerment company. Oh, this company is doing really good stuff for the environment. And this one really treats their workers really well. And so that's what I've done. Now, most of the clients that I work with are like, I, that's too much for me. I don't have the time to study these stocks and that's okay. I don't want to like, you have to do this way. You have to do that way. There are options for everyone. But then I know there's other people out there like me who do like to get into the, into the weeds with it Yeah, and do that. And I'm like, great, there's options. So that's why I created a course because I wanted to teach people all the options called know it all an investing course. And I literally teach everything about investing because you also to ethically invest, you want to understand everything about investing. And then you want to understand how to do it ethically, right? And so I teach literally everything you could ever want to know about investing, ethically investing, whether it's index fund, individual stocks, it's all there. (laughs) That's great. That's great. That's really awesome. I want to shift gears a little bit with you because one thing that I've noticed that you've talked about, and I'm also really passionate about, and I actually loved what you posted about this recently, but let's talk student loan debt. And switch the gears. So that's a big one. And I think it's a huge, huge reason that a lot of specific populations, let's just put it out there, but a lot of people of color, especially have this huge weight on their shoulders in terms of being able to be financially free and to actually break through the rat race. You mentioned in particular, you really broke it down nicely in terms of based on the demographics of folks, what percentage of these folks actually have student loan debt. And it was just like the African-American community was the highest. And then it was the Latinx community. I don't remember who was in third place, but either way, it felt like it was just a really good breakdown of why allowing for the cancellation of student loan debt is a good thing. So I'm just wondering if you could just break down a little bit, because there's it's still a controversial topic. A lot of people, for some reason, are so against canceling like $10,000 of student loan debt, which in my opinion, honestly, is nothing having gone to law school. Yep. Yeah. So tell us what your thoughts are. Let's get into it. This is in making it broader, like we've done with some of these other topics. The student loan system also needs to be completely transformed because part of it is one, and just like how we talk about education. One is it's really communicated to our communities. Like that's the way out of poverty. And I do think that an education beyond high school can be super helpful in helping someone get a better job, right? But part of it, I like the way I describe this is, but things have changed that have really hurt students over time. For example, like one, college used to be way cheaper than it is now. And people aren't talking about that. So yeah, if you say, if you hike up rents, it's going to screw everyone over. Like the cost of living for rent is just high for everyone. It, there's going to be communities that are really hurt by that. If you hike up the cost of schools, there are communities that are going to really suffer because of that. And I give an example because I have two sisters. I'm the middle child. Both my sisters graduated from the same college. I went, it was a private Christian college. I went there for two years. I did not want to go there. (laughs) Father forced me to go there. I took a year off and transferred to a public UC Santa Cruz. And so basically when my older sister went there, there are more grants available for low income because we like we were poor by the time my younger sister, because my mom finally had left my father, which was a good thing. 
And my mom was really struggling financially, was just on disability. And so we had less money when my younger sister went to school. But because Pell Grants had been reduced in different grants for students and the cost went up, my older sister basically got paid. She like got extra money for living expenses, basically got paid to go to college. I walked away. It was, oh, I found the number recently. I think it was like 18,000. My younger sister, I think, has 60 to 80,000. That's real. Yeah. Same school, like worse financial situation. <laughs> wow. Went from getting paid to 80,000, 60, 80,000. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, you can't just change that system and expect people not to be just really struggling to keep up with that. And so then, and then the other part of it is the way they're like, okay, if you go to college, but you don't make enough to really cover the student loans, they say you can pay, what is it called? Where you can set it up. So you pay income-based repayment plans. That's it. Yeah. So I say, don't worry. You went to college, you studied to do great things in the world, but now you're working barely above minimum wage because it's hard to find a job in your field. Just make an income-based repayment plan. What they don't tell you is you're still paying the same amount of interest. So I've had clients who literally for two, one client for two years was paying income-based repayment plans until she, she's a graphic designer and then got a job that she could pay more. And her balance went up over those yeah. years by $10,000. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It feels so predatory too. And it's supposed to be the federal it's government. So predatory. It's yeah. Like, oh, fine. You're fine. Two years later, I owe 10,000 more than when I started. Yeah. So her balance, she was making payments. Her balance didn't go down. It went up and it's not like it went up by $500, but 10,000 over two years. It's a lot of money. Right. And it's not like her loan was even six figures to start with. Her mm-hmm. loan was like, like 30 or 40,000. Things to, to go from 30,000 to 40,000 over two years when you're already struggling. That's a messed up system. So right. It's one thing to say you need to pay back what you took out plus a little bit of interest. But no, they're pay, making people, you need to pay back the 30,000 you took out plus double that. Now you need to pay 60,000. That's not right. Yeah. And so I think what they aren't considering is when I like did the numbers on basically the average student loan debt and the average interest rate and the average payoff time that people were paying double what they had took out. And so with most people, they're paying about like 30,000 in interest. So really canceling 10,000 is not canceling. People are like pay back what you took out. People are, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 10,000 is just canceling some interest. Saying, Sorry, we've been like, overcharging you on interest we'll give you back and you only have to pay 20,000 instead of 30,000 in interest yeah thanks how about you like only make me pay 10,000 in interest I think that's if they're like profiting the government is like surviving because they're profiting off overcharging students that's a problem I love what you said particularly about how it's disproportionately affecting people of color and so it's yeah so we purposely, we know that, for example, let's just say in theory, we need this and taxpayers are taking the brunt of it. We shouldn't have to be depending on literally brown and black people that have already probably at systemically anyway, at a disadvantage in terms of their wealth as a family, we shouldn't be depending on that. And then we're basically exploiting those communities. So I loved how you broke that down in your post. That was so brilliant. Any other thoughts on that? I just think it brings up the idea of the poor tax. It's like the poorer you are, the more you pay and communities of color tend to have less access to money. And so then they're 
profiting off us from our student loans, right? They're profiting, banks are profiting on us because they're charging us overdraft fees. I talked about this on TikTok too recently. There are some banks like Ally Bank got rid of overdraft fees. And I'm so excited about that because I hope that's the future and more banks do that. I think there's a few banks that have done that now. Right. Um, because it's like, you don't have to charge someone. You could just be like, okay, until you put money in the account, like you can't use that debit card. And that's what Ally Bank does. Yeah. And I've done because I have one account that I just put a little bit of money every week for extra spending. And sometimes I forget that I did a Venmo or transfer. And then, so when it goes negative, they don't charge me. I just transfer over 10 bucks from my checking to cover the balance, right? So banks don't have to, they're already making money off our money being in their accounts. They're already making profit by taking our money, investing it, handing out loans to other people. Yeah. They're already, they don't need to also, if you look at the numbers of what overdraft fees are and like all these bank fees, they're like, that's why these banks are rich. They're just profiting off poor people. Then they're by private equity firms, by hiking up their rent, our rents, they're getting rich, right? Corporations by having us in debt and paying loads of money and interest on our credit cards, right? Because we don't have money to pay our bills. So we're paying our bills on credit cards, right? So because we are poor, then we are paying way more than a rich person would pay for the exact same lifestyle. Let's also then talk about just the reality of debt, right? And how to overcome debt and how to get rid of it. So one of the things that I love that you talk about too is having your oat milk lattes, having your Pilates and doing things that make you happy. And just think about, there's so many different schools of thought about this, but I'm thinking of someone like Dave Ramsey, right? Who would probably say you shouldn't be going, if you have credit card debt, you probably shouldn't be going and having that oat milk latte, right? Or you shouldn't be going out to eat. And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts about that. Cause I know one of the things that you, it's even in your profile, on your bio, you talk about like crushing debt. So how do we reconcile those issues of really someone trying to, at this point in their lives, really bring down their debt, but then also wanting to enjoy their lifestyle and wanting to do things, doing a lot of free things too, right? But but doing things that like they want to do, like they want to have that oat milk latte. So I'm wondering what your thought process is on that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Because I think one, the thing that irks me about Dave Ramsey, I don't think that shame and judgment is a way to create change. And so I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. If we're just shaming ourselves for our purchases, I was just like on a coaching call with a client about this today. I'll give you the exact example I use for her because part of it is like really thinking about what makes us happy and what will help us get the life that we want. And part of that is planning for our future self. And part of that is planning for our present self. So for example, I pay $229 a month for a Pilates membership. Pilates is the only exercise that I found like having a membership, having to go in person it's only membership the thing that I found that has got me to exercise regularly. That's so great. I actually haven't gone in the last two weeks because things were busy. I've been really getting into breath work recently. So I've been doing mm, breath work classes. I love breath work. It's so great. So good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we can have a whole another episode about that. Yeah. And so I could be and there's part of me. I was like, gosh, darn it. You're paying 229 a month and you haven't gone in two weeks. And then I like, no, okay, instead of shaming myself, can I use this as data? What are my options? I thought I'm going to consider if I'm still not going like in another week, I think I'm going to pause my membership and I still pay, I don't know, $15 a month, but I don't want to get rid of it because they've raised their prices since I've gotten a membership. And so if I were to pay the same amount, cancel and sign up, I would get less classes. Yeah. So I want to keep it. So I'm instead of shaming myself, I'm using the data to figure out what's the right plan for me. Mm. And, but I'm like, I still do want to keep going. And it's been a busy couple of weeks. So I'm doing this all in my head and coaching myself through this and be like, okay, 
let's see if this week and next week I start going again. If I do, then I'll, then I, then there's no harm lost, whatever, who cares? Great. I didn't go, not a big deal. I've got the money. Right. But if it goes another two weeks and I'm not going to classes, maybe it's time to pause for a little bit and figure out my schedule and I can restart it when I have more time to go back. Right. So it's all about the way you talk about it to others, to yourself. Right. And so people say, well, I, or either the extreme, you need to cut out the avocado toast or no, you should have your avocado toast. And I don't think it's either one. It's like, okay, what's right for you and what's working, right? If you cut out your avocado toast, you can't afford a home. That's not going to help. I've known people, I remember like I was eating out a lot constantly, almost three meals a day (laughs) when I was in my twenties, because I was working a very stressful job, long hours. And if I had cut out some of my eating out, I had friends who were buying houses in Philadelphia. I was living in Philadelphia at the time for 6,000 down. And I was like doing the math. If I had cut out like literally my lattes, because I was getting one every single morning and a bagel with cream cheese every single morning. <laughs> if I had cut that out for two years, I probably would have been able to save $6,000 and buy a house. That's so real. There's some real stuff to that, but that yeah. doesn't mean one answer, one way is the right way or wrong way. So like when I, when I was paying off 11,000 in credit card debt, because I had done a lot of emotional spending, didn't know how to manage my money. And I was like, just trying to grow up and working this crazy job and constantly stressed out. So I was literally eating out almost three meals a day. So when I was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I want to get rid of this debt. It affects all areas of our life. Eating out that much, I was gaining weight too. Right. And when I dug down to it, I was like, what's the problem? okay, I'm stressed out. I was lonely because I was in, I'm from LA. I was in Philadelphia. I didn't feel like I had a community. And so I really had to dig out what do I want? And what are some of the problems that I'm trying to use, spend money to say, mm-hmm. deal with. And so I was like, I'm spending all this money to cope and eating all this food to cope with the fact that I'm lonely here and that I'm stressed out. And so what I realized if I deal with this loneliness and the stress, then I'm going to spend less, right? And I'm going to be happier and I'm dealing with the actual problem. So I joined a roller derby league (laughs) and I actually had to pay fees and I had to pay for skates, but I saved so much money because what I was doing is I was working out regularly, right? And a workout that I thought was really fun and really enjoyed. I had an automatic community of friends that were so awesome. And really, I didn't feel lonely anymore. I felt like I had this whole community. And so that really helped me. And so then I was like, okay, I still want to eat out because I'm like working long hours, but how do I balance it? So I would literally go every morning coffee shop, get a latte and bagel. And I was like, I also want to lose weight because <laughs> I'm like eating too much. So I changed it to getting an iced coffee and a chocolate croissant, which was cheaper. <laughs> and if I would go get a burger, instead of getting a burger and fries and a drink, I would just go get a burger. Right. That was enough to satisfy me. And I probably growing up poor, I realized I also had this mindset. I need to finish what I have because I might not have all these mindset issues I was trying to break down. Like, no, if you're full after eating the burger, if you really want the fries, you can go back and buy the fries. You're not poor anymore. You're okay. So breaking down all these mindsets, making these small shifts, even though I was spending more money on the roller derby because I had monthly fees and I had to buy skates and different stuff. Overall, I was spending so much less and I was happier. (laughs) I think it really comes down to what you were talking about earlier about a lot of these things are psychological. What is it that we're really trying to address? You were literally spending money on doing that roller derby, but by spending the money there that allowed you to start cutting down in other ways, that sounds amazing. I thought of one last thing and I just posted about it today, actually, in regards to the fact that I was going to be interviewing you. But one of the things I also love that you do, so many things, but one of the things is how you volunteer at dog shelters. So I had a nonprofit for a little while there and I'd also help with rescue dogs, et cetera. 
And it's just such an amazing way to give back. But you talked about how you felt like capitalism really makes a lot of us think in order to have fun, we need to spend money. And so the question that I have for you is what are ways that you, or you can even help some of our listeners rewire our brains so that we can find the fun in the free things. So I'm yeah. wondering if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of it is t- having some real conversations with our friends too, because part of it, it's so communal to always spend money with friends. And mm. if you're on this journey and you're not sharing with your friends, hey, like I may want to spend less money and could we maybe find some things that are free or cheap to do together? If you're not communicating that and you're on this island and by yourself, you're going to constantly feel that pressure. If they're inviting me out to brunch, you're inviting me out to this, I got to spend the money. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. My friends all know that I'm always down for a walk mm-hmm. and we love, I love picnics. And so I plan them and they invite me to them because they know, hey, this is what we do. We go for walks, we do picnics. And I've also gone to concerts with friends and I've also done other, I've gone to brunch with friends, but that's not the only thing that we do together, right? Yeah. And so that's part of it. And then it, part of it is then you just have to put in the time and you have to make it fun for yourself. So it's let me find all the free things in my because every city has some stuff, right? Whether it's a little hiking trail, or whether it's like a game night or meetup.org has stuff or people go on neighborhood walks in LA. I'm sure they have that in other places. It's definitely harder depending on where you live. I'm really lucky I'm in Los Angeles. There's literally nonstop, right? And so part of it is then really, um, setting that structure for yourself. Like, when am I actually just going to sit down and look up free things to do in my city? When am I going to go and check out the library? Putting it in your calendar. I want to go check out the library. And literally, I like getting on lists, email lists, instead of getting on email lists for all these companies trying to sell you stuff like Sephora or all the those companies. That's the only one I like. I always remember getting their emails <laughs> being tempted. Can you get on your library list, sir? And so I did that. And my local library, I'm on their email list. I had went in and was like, hey, because they used to have free yoga classes that stopped during COVID. But I was like, I know they have some events. So I was like, how do I find out about free events? So like, we can add you to our list, sir. Got an email last week about free origami crafts. So I went the other day and one of my friends wanted, I posted about it. One of my friends like, I love that. So I got an extra one for her. I'm actually going to reach out to a friend this week because it was her birthday and she loves crafts. And so I'm going to be like, hey, can I bring this over to your house and bring some cupcakes so we can celebrate your birthday? And I know she would love that. That's, That's awesome. We assume that our friends want us to spend money on them, but I know that friend would just love something sweet and love a craft. And I got one for free from the library. And it's like not making assumptions that people are expecting us to spend money. Because if we have those conversations, most people would be okay doing something for free or maybe for cheap. Like we, I go to coffee with friends, but then we go for a coffee and a walk and I eat beforehand rather than going to brunch. That's mm-hmm. still cheaper to get a latte and go for a walk than it is to have a full brunch. Um, yeah. And there's, Still, again, I like go to brunch too with friends, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not limiting ourselves to that. It's, hey, you have all the options in the world. You can spend money. You cannot spend money. You can spend a little money. You can spend a lot of money. Where are you at right now financially? And what do you want to do right now? And that might be different tomorrow. That might be different the next week. But your options are limitless. Oh, Judy, so many gems here. So many gems. So where can folks learn from you, follow you, get in touch with you? Yes. So I'm on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. I actually deleted it after Elon, (laughs) shortly after Elon. (laughs) I hear that. 
Yeah. I'm still there at Hear Me Finance, H E A R. So my motto is I'm woman, hear me finance. Yes. <laughs> and and at the link of my bow on Instagram, you can find all kinds of and on TikTok, my link tree that you can find all kinds of things, ways to work with me. I have a group program called the Confident Money Club. I do occasionally take on private clients. I have my course, Know It All for teaching ethical investing. So there's lots of ways to work with me passively or actively. And mostly just DM me on Instagram and say hi. I love talking to everyone. Yeah. I'd love to connect. Thank you so much for having me on. I love people wanting to have these conversations. This makes me so happy and people being open to hear different concepts and different perspectives. I love it. Yes. Yes, girl. Yes. <laughs> I'm here for it. All right. Well, Judy, again, thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. As many of you know, I'm technically an attorney and forever advocate that does speaking engagements and coaching when not podcasting and being a mama to my amazing daughters. Nothing in my podcasts, however, is ever to be construed as legal advice. These are for educational and enjoyment purposes only. Anywho, if you'd like to follow me in real time or get access to my free five must-have secrets for public speaking, follow me on Instagram at the Latina Advocate Podcast. That's the at symbol, then the Latina Advocate Podcast, no spaces in between. Thanks and have a great day. See you next time.